decorations tonight. It's the annual cultural picnic at Meadowbank Primary School in suburban Auckland. Blankets are spread out over the school field on a warm summer evening as pupils perform for the grown-ups. The kids are dressed up in all sorts of national costumes. I am representing Middle East. Why? Because Mummy likes the food. <laughs> I am representing England because my mum was born there. I'm in France. I'm Canada because half my family is from Canada. I'm here with my wife and two sons. So which country were you boys representing today? Um, I was representing the Philippines. That's Jacob, who's seven. He somehow got picked to represent the Philippines. We don't know why, but my 10-year-old Micah is representing Wales. That's where my ancestors come from, from about, back about four generations, I think. Do you guys remember what your connection to Wales is? Mm, the Three Brothers. Can you remember anything about the Three Brothers? Well, there was Arthur Roger. Arthur Roger Watkin was my great-grandfather, one of three brothers to emigrate to New Zealand at the start of the 1880s. And he came to New Zealand and kind of started my whole New Zealand thing and why we are in New Zealand now. They arrived in 1881, right at the, really, at the end of the Taranaki Wars. Do you know anything about that? Um, I know that they were one of the collective wars in the um, NZ Wars, and I think they're one of the bigger ones. I can't remember that much, though. When we get home, can we learn more about it? Sure. I'm going to do a whole podcast about it. Yay. People would give their lives before they gave their lands to sale. They call this an act of rebellion. There was so much land here, why can't we just have it? And they suffered significant casualties. The bulk of Taranaki was confiscated by the stroke of a pen. Your ancestors couldn't make the payments. How do you think your ancestors saw mine? <sighs> That's interesting. What led to the conflict in Waitara was obviously just the hunger for land. Waitara was the flashpoint. Waitara was the prize. Settlers wanted it as much as Māori were determined to keep it. That's Mihinarangi Forbes introducing the documentary that partners this podcast. You can watch it at rnz.co.nz. In 1860, Waitara was the spark that ignited conflict that raged through the entire province for the next 20 years. In all, Māori lost 1.2 million acres of land. For Māori, it ended much as it began with the ransacking of their lands and mana. The ransacking, that is, of Parihaka in 1881, an armed raid that's been called the last military act of the New Zealand wars. And just a few months earlier, a tenant farmer from Wales had arrived in New Zealand to gamble everything on a new life, new land. My great-grandfather, Arthur Watkin. So this is the story of the Waitara dispute that sparked the Taranaki Wars. But it's also a personal journey for me, which is why I'm at the airport about to board a plane for New Plymouth. To find out more about my own ancestors and the country they arrived in. To try and understand the relationships between Māori and those settlers. To find out where the land they farmed came from. Try and figure out how me and my kids should feel about that now. To answer these questions, we need to go back to those first shots fired at Waitara 150 years ago this month and the events leading up to that. It started, as did all the New Zealand wars really, as an argument over land and power. Well, the, the settlement of New Plymouth had been formed in the early 1840s and the settlers had purchased you know, lands from the New Zealand Company unseen and had travelled to the other side of the world expecting this huge expanse of wonderful, fertile lands. This is historian Vincent O'Malley, author of The New Zealand Wars and the Great War for New Zealand. He's talking about Edward Gibbon Wakefield's New Zealand Company and its grand but very flawed immigration scheme to bring out thousands of settlers. They arrive really to find that the, the company doesn't actually have title to the lands, um, that 
those transactions are disputed by Māori. So right from the start, it's messy and pretty fraught. The New Zealand company deeds were hugely problematic and, and really not worth the paper that they were written on. Both Māori and Pākehā feel hard done by. So these settlers are essentially confined to quite a narrow strip of land in and around New Plymouth and, and grow increasingly frustrated at that. And so there's this pressure that builds up on the Crown to provide further lands for those settlers. This is where Waitara comes in. Just 15 kilometres up the coast on a wide, fertile river plain, it looks pretty appealing to the few thousand settlers stuck in New Plymouth. Perhaps um, Pākehā of those times looked over the fence and the grass was greener. This is Rurikiri Hond, Te Atiawa historian and Waitangi Tribunal member. They thought that that would be a really good place, particularly when the numbers rose within New Plymouth. The tension then escalated, saying there's a better place just down the road. Problem is, that better, fertile land, it wasn't for sale. You know, Wurimu King, Tarangatake and others who were living at Waikanae at that time uh, are asked repeatedly to sell Waitara. But, you know, he says time and again that Waitara is not for sale. They will not part with those lands. And so what happens in 1859, 1860 is not something new. It, this has been going on for more than a decade. We need a bit of context here because you might be wondering why Wurimu Kingi, one of the great Taranaki Rangatira, was living down in Waikanae near Wellington. Well, Māori had been fighting over the Taranaki for much of the early 1800s. So some Taranaki Māori migrated south to get away from all that. Wiramu Kingi Tirangitake is key to the story, and he was part of that migration. But the Pākehā settlers, they didn't really understand all this history. To them, the land was just empty. As far as they, as they could see is that um, Māori had these vast areas of land that weren't under cultivation. Um, they, they thought that there was so much land here that um, why can't we just have it? This was almost like terra nullis, you know. There were, this was empty country and, and open for occupation. But Atiawa did always have people in the area. And when their whānau down in Waikanae heard what was going on, they started coming home to defend the whenua. It wasn't just any old move home. Our life was good down there. Meet Rawuri Dorba, chair of the Otaroa Hapu and a tribal historian. Business was good down there. Widamu Kingi's father ordered him home. And so uh, the dutiful son uh, then made arrangements with the people to move home and hold our lands in Waitara. The main migration back came in 1848. Now it was clear to everyone that the land wasn't empty, but as Vincent O'Malley says the pressure to sell didn't stop. And you see this intense pressure through the 1850s building up. In 1851, the gold rush in Victoria means an increased demand for food from hungry miners across the ditch. Selling food there gives those struggling Taranaki settlers some sort of financial stability. And of course, the demand for land only grows louder. So in May 1854, local Māori get together, hundreds, maybe more than a 1,000 members of Te Atiawa, Ngāti Ruanui, and other iwi meet at Manawapo, South Taranaki, for an extraordinary hui. Here's Ruakiri Hond again. They met to talk about the impact of colonisation in this region. They understood that the value of the land was far better if they retained land and developed it economically. And in that hui, they made the commitment not to sell land. In the hui, they passed around a toki, the name of the toki, or kurukuru, and as arrived in each person's hands, they uttered these words, the oath, tangata tōmua, whenua tōmuri. People would give their lives before they gave their lands to sale. Well, for many Pākehā, the, the Manawapo hui is seen as the start of a land league, and the assumption is that people like Wiramu Kingi are are really exercising a kind of veto over the rights of other Māori to do what they want with their lands. Because the thing is, there are Māori willing to sell. There were people that were saying we need to sell land because there is so much demand for land among Pākehā and we want to build the relationship. This is the strategy we should use. We should sell the land in this area. One of those was Tetera Manuka. He makes several offers to sell 600 acres on the south bank of the Waitara River, some say as a form of utu against Wiramu Kingi. He blames Kingi for the refusal of a young woman to marry one of his close relatives. Things are coming to a head. As far as the settlers are concerned, there's a willing seller 
and a willing buyer. They are angry. Yeah, so I mean, there's a sense that people like Willem Kingi need to be kind of brought under the thumb of the law because, you know, Pākehā didn't travel halfway around the world to play second fiddle to people that they regarded as inferior to themselves. Māori, for their part, are just as frustrated. The land, as Witamu Kingi once said, belongs to us all. No one person could just sell land if others disagree, and frankly, they aren't going to be told what to do by some foreigners who have only been in the country five minutes. Kingi is the higher-ranking chief in the area. If he says no sale, end of. Except it isn't. Enter Governor Thomas Gore-Brown. Governor uh, Thomas Gore-Brown arrives in 1855 to replace George Grey, and his previous appointment was as governor of St Helena, you know, basically a small island in the, in the Atlantic. Vincent O'Malley again. This was a considerable step up for him, and it's hard not to reach the conclusion that he was out of his depth in New Zealand. Um, and also he had very little understanding of Māori, and I think very little empathy for Māori as well. He was also quite a stubborn figure, and I think you can see that with the Waitara dispute when he, he basically refused to budge, even when many others pointed out that he was wrong to assume that Teteta had a right to sell those lands by himself. This is a crucial point. Until now, the government has tried to get consensus before buying Maori land and stepped back from purchases where consensus couldn't be reached. Rawiri Dorba. Part of the rules of those days is that uh, you couldn't buy disputed land. One of the rules was that only the Queen could buy land off our rangatira. Uh, in that case for Waitara, we were made absolutely sure that people knew that this was a disputed land. One of the people advising Governor Brown about all this is Native Secretary, Highland Scots immigrant Donald Maclean, a man with a deep knowledge of tikanga. He admits that Kingi has the final say by right of mana, but he advises Brown to push ahead with the purchase anyway. Why? Obviously that's debated. One of Maclean's arguments is that Tiatiawa lost mana whenua when so many migrated south for so long. Except, as we know, some had remained. Plus, none of the iwi who drove them off had ever occupied the land, so not a great argument. Some, like Rawadi Dorba, point to lust for land. What was on it? what was under it. Um, if you have a look at the, the timber around here, all the forests that have gone out here, um, when you look at the oil rigs, they started mining for oil in the mid-60s, just a couple of years after the wars in Waitara. The, the, the whole rape of Waitara has been about the, the resources, and they used our people against each other to do that. Time for a bit of context again. Bigger picture, by the late 1850s, the political landscape is changing. British settlers are flooding in, and in 1858, Pākehā outnumber Māori for the first time. That same year, Waikato chief Te Whero Whero is named the first Māori king by tribes opposed to land sales. The stakes are rising. Settlers feel like Māori are rejecting the Queen's sovereignty. There's this kind of lurking Victorian assumption of racial dominance that's also at play here. And how that plays out is in, in this kind of notion that settlers should be in charge. The politics around this are complicated. It's not just settler versus Maori. Both groups have internal divisions. And we have to be really careful judging these people through 21st century eyes. One quick example. While Brown's starting a war in Taranaki, he's also trying to introduce Maori self-rule, a, a native council with its own budget. He fails, but you can see it's not always black and white. Though with Taranaki, it kind of is. The settlers still want to buy Waitara, and Wiramu Kingi is still saying no. So March 1859, Governor Brown comes to Taranaki, he attends a hui with Māori. Um, Te Tera offers to sell land to the Crown. Donald Maclean is there and advises Brown that Te Tera has a right to sell those lands. And so Brown accepts that offer. O'Malley says the Governor's decision is seen by Māori as something new and shocking. So this is a case where Brown is attempting to say that the Crown is now in charge and, and Te Atiawa must obey the rule of law in, in a way that was you know, quite different from what had happened previously where the fact that uh, Māori communities still had considerable 
ability to manage their own affairs and that had been promised them in the treaty and so on. But here, um, Brown had taken things to the next level. And that next level was going to mean war. February 1860, the British attempt to survey the disputed lands and the owners send out Kuya to pull out the survey pegs, which is seen as a way of signalling opposition to the supposed purchase without doing that in a, in a confrontational way. And the Crown's response to that really is quite extraordinary because they call this um, an act of rebellion, pulling out survey pegs on the ground, and they declare martial law over the Taranaki province. On February 22nd, local militia begin to arm and outlying settlers start moving behind the barricades in New Plymouth. On the Māori side, Kingi is known as a diplomat and peacemaker, so another rangatira, Hapurona, emerges as a military leader. Hapurona had been up in the far north, and uh, so that experience in fighting the Pākehā came to the fore um, as a person we needed when we were invaded by the British Army. But even as everyone's preparing for war, Taranaki Māori still plead for peace. A large gathering was called in New Plymouth by the government, and it was there the karaki of that Hapurona composed, advocating peace, ko te karaki o te coming from a person who was recognised for his skill, his strategy in war, his words meant something when he was the one advocating that Taranaki did not want war, it wanted peace. Hapurona said, I've seen war, I've seen what war gives the people, and we do not want this for Te Atiawa. We do not want this for Taranaki, and what starts in Waitara will very quickly escalate to the whole country. But the die is cast. The Crown builds a fort on the disputed land, Camp Waitara. So Kingi and Haparona build a pa just across the river an L-shaped pa called Te Kohia. Te Kohia was a statement by our people in the clear view of the Crown's military camp that this is our whenua. You can't just come here and say that we've surveyed it, therefore we've bought it, therefore it's ours. And so what happens is the British fire the first shots on the pa, the people inside the pa uh, perform a haka and then they return fire. And the first casualty of the war is a Taranaki um, volunteer called Sartan who they approach the pa when they hear the gun firing has ended and that he attempts to snatch the flag from inside the pa and he's shot and, and killed. For the British, this isn't going to plan. The assumption on the Crown side was that there would be a quick, easy victory. And uh, what happened at Tukohia is after the initial exchange of gunfire on the 17th of March, at dawn the next morning, the Crown forces approach the power and they, they find that it's empty. This sets the pattern for 12 months of fighting. What you get is this uh, constant Crown effort to achieve a decisive victory and, and assumptions that that will be straightforward, compared with the approach of the defenders, which is, is to, to frustrate that and to avoid being caught in open warfare where the superior British numbers and artillery and technology would, would come into play. So, no quick victory for British forces led by Colonel Charles Gold. For Kingi, though, Tekohia proves a point. The British are the invaders. From a Māori perspective, that was all important. If Māori had launched the first attack, well, then we would have been in the wrong. However, the Crown had done that. That demonstrated that they were the one who were the aggressor. Following on from that, it was considered that the Te Atiawa cause was a just one and that others would then come to their assistance. 
And that's exactly what happened. Within 10 days, about 500 warriors, including a number of chiefs, converge in the hills around Wairika at a pa called Kaipopo. The pa was a, was a way to tell the government that they shouldn't come beyond this pa, so it was a signal to the Crown. But then on March 28, news reaches a skittery in New Plymouth that five settlers, including two boys, have been killed at Omata, a few k's to the south. Around 120 British troops and 100 local militia are immediately sent out on a mission to bring in any other stranded settlers. They head into the bush separately, in two columns. And later that day, those local volunteers are ambushed by warriors from Kaipopo. The column of soldiers comes to their aid, as do 60 sailors and marines from the HMS Niger. Both groups firing artillery into the PAR. The Niger crew then storm the PAR at dusk and take it. The British claimed that they had killed as many as 150 Māori, but you know, other sources indicate that the actual number may have been as few as five people. So, you know, the outcome of that was, even today, I think it's far from clear. After Kaipopo, a ceasefire lasts almost three months. Both Māori and Pākehā are waiting to see whether the Kingitanga will choose a side. In New Plymouth, reinforcements arrive, but they find pretty tough conditions. And you get, over the space of a year, about 120 people die of disease and, and illness and so on because of the cramped conditions there. 1860 is a harsh winter, but Haparona spends it welcoming new troops of his own and, Hon says, building new pa. Again we see the approach used by Hapurona when he established two pa. Puketa Kauere, that was standing off to the side, and then another one, one in the more traditional sense of a pa, at Onuku Kaitara. See, the twin pa are largely decoys. Most of the warriors are hidden in rifle pits dug between the two. And so again, the strategy played out as Hapurona had planned. We see the approach used by Hapudona putting his enemy in a position of weakness, attacking the traditional pa and all of the time having his forces hidden in a position of strength. In June, Major Thomas Nelson leads 350 troops in an assault on the pa, having been ordered by Gold to teach the troublesome natives a lesson. Instead, O'Malley says, he's taught a lesson in trench warfare. There were also a number of sort of outer pits that Māori fired on the British from, from concealed positions in the fern there. For the British, um, they really didn't know what had hit them and they suffered a huge number of casualties as a result. In New Plymouth, that sparks panic. In August 1860, you get an evacuation of women and children. Um, a lot of them go to Nelson. Colonel Gold loses his job in charge of the British troops, replaced by Major General Thomas Pratt. And Pratt tries something new, sapping. Which is essentially a much slower, uh, more gradual process involving digging long trenches, tunnelling basically towards the series of power that Māori have built. So in other words, to overcome the success of Māori trench warfare, the British turn to trenches of their own. They abandon the full frontal assault in favour of months and months of digging. Pratt becomes a target for a lot of criticism for people who are wanting a decisive battle. They, they want to see a major uh, defeat inflicted on Māori, but it doesn't happen. So, you know, the sapping operation begins in December 1860, and it's still going in March 1861. The closest they come to a decisive battle comes in January 1861, when Haparona and Poto lead a raid on the number three redoubt which is a very daring thing to do, and they suffer significant casualties as a result of that. At least 30 warriors out of the 140 are killed, maybe more. It's a disaster. But other than that, for months on end, really, you've got kind of this long-range exchange of fire, along with this, this gradual inching towards Ma the Māori position at Te Arei. Three and a half kilometres of saps were built by the troops to get close enough to the pa to make their attack. It's backbreaking work, and Māori, including Wahine, can at times pick off the engineers as they dig. But the saps are working. Yeah, so by March 1861, they'd got within 75 metres of the outer defences at Te Are, and at that rate, they were quite close to breaching those outer lines. So, frustrating as it seemed to many settlers, it was quite an effective system. Kingi and his allies are outnumbered, outgunned and exhausted. But on the other side, Governor Gore Brown sees little hope of that decisive victory. 
And anyway, at this stage, he's convinced the battleground that'll really matter is the Waikato. The decisive foe will be the Kingitanga. And so he's turning his attention north. Warriors and troops alike just want to head home to their crops. So when Ngāti Hoa leader Wiramu Tamihana offers to negotiate a truce, both sides agree to lay down their weapons, at least for now. At last, Māori and Pākehā sit down at the negotiating table. Sadly, little comes from those talks. The Waitangi Tribunal calls this the never-ending war. In one form or another, conflict over the land in Taranaki has gone on until the present day. But in terms of armed violence, the ashes of this first stage of the Taranaki Wars are to burst into flame again in 1863 and 1868. And finally, at Parihaka in 1881, the year my great-grandfather arrives in the country. Arthur Roger Watkin was born in October 1841 in Manavan in Wales, the son of farmers Anne and Job, and baptised on Christmas Day. Forty years later, right at the end of the Taranaki Wars and almost exactly halfway through his life, he, his wife Mary, their four children, his elder brother John, his wife Betsy and their children would board a ship called the Cotopaxi, steerage in the poorer quarters, and sail away from Britain for the rest of their lives. In Melbourne, they switched to the Rotorua, travelling via Bluff to Littleton, and there they met their younger brother Daniel, who'd immigrated the year before. And together they sailed on to Taranaki. Which is where I am now, on my way to Pukiariki, the museum here in New Plymouth. One of the researchers has been doing some work for me, digging up what she can about the Watkin clan who arrived here all those, what, 139 years ago. So, just on my way in now. Level two, it's up here. It's right there, it's right there. Thank you. Good morning, I am looking for... Hi, <laughs> how are you doing? I'm met by Anna Eddy. So you made it? <laughs> I made it. Good. Oh yes, good flight. Oh. We've got rain here, which we haven't got in Auckland. Anna takes me into the records room and wheels in a trolley. <laughs> You've got a whole trolley. Well, it's, it looks more impressive than it actually is. Yeah, well, it actually is pretty impressive, as you'll hear. We're also joined by local historian, Kelvin Day. This is Kelvin. Tape's rolling. G'day Kelvin, how are you doing? I've got to say I'm, you know, <laughs> very excited, slightly nervous. Uh. Anna gets straight down to business, beginning with Arthur and John's arrival in New Zealand. They depart, departed a shift in Littleton. In Littleton. Because I found a, quite a crucial art, little note in the newspaper. And there it is, applications for land in Taranaki. And it says the following applications were granted. A. R. Watkin of Dalston, Canterbury. Ah. Says the section, 17 block 4, Kaupukunui. And Daniel Watkin. Explain to me how that worked. If you were arriving from a different country and you wanted land, which I guess most people yeah. did, what did you do? Um, do I have it here? So that's what you could read in newspapers. South Canterbury Times, the land was advertised. Ah, Crown Lands Office. Patea, 9th of September 1881. Further sale of 12,000 acres of rural and suburban lands for cash at public auction and on deferred payments on application. Rural Bush. Payments, Kelvin Day explains, to pay for the war because uh, wars are, are very, very expensive, particularly mm. when you're running them from the other side of the world. They brought in a huge number of men, and um, these were fully paid soldiers. Through the 1870s, you've also got the Julius Vogel-led government borrowing tens of millions of pounds offshore to build infrastructure and lure immigrants. So by the 1880s, the government needed cash. 12,000 yeah. acres all in one go. So that's the, the block Kaupuko Nui. But this is where Anna points to the map and shows me something surprising. This land they bought is not the rough inland farm that my family knows about. So it's not the land Huiroa that comes later. Oh, okay. So it's more... Oh, so there was a, there was was a different bit of land. It's somewhere... This is news. <laughs> yeah, so somewhere here. Just to the southeast of so Mount Taranaki? West of Stratford. West of Stratford. Here. This is around and the Pater River. Pater River. I knew great-grand-uncle John had ended up in this area. It's good land, volcanic soil, flat, the land the government really wanted from Māori. This area was Ngāti Ruanui, 
So the three brothers had this block. All together? Yeah. So three, Arthur three got 310 ten, acres. John, 320. Daniel got 175 acres. Wow. <laughs> wow. So they got it in September 81. We don't know for sure how the Watkin families got there, but Anna has a diary of another Welsh family who arrived about the same time. Set up for the North Island by steamer to Wellington and then from there they managed to get a passage on a small steamer to Parterre. So that's probably the, similar, so that's, yeah. the, the same yeah, way. Yeah, so they would have gone the same way from Parterre, walked and carried their swags. So they just would have everything they had on their backs. Yeah. And the land they found... It was deep forest. Deep forest. Deep ah, forest. I thought I saw Waimati Plains on it and I thought that sounded better, but... It was in the middle of the bush. Ah. Anna and Calvin agree. Arthur and co probably would have been just as surprised as I am when they saw the land they'd bought. They would have been told that they were getting a bush section, but they probably wouldn't have been really aware of, of how lush <laughs> and dense the forests are in Taranaki. So from rolling Welsh valleys... Probably great disappointment, yeah. So when they finally got here and saw it. And saw it, there was shock and horror. Boy, that's tough. And the first task was to chop down trees, to to clear the forest. You can't grow food in the forest. So how how do you, what do you live off the first month? And how do you feed your family? Remember, the auction notice talked about deferred payments? Assuming you couldn't pay up front, you paid off the land as you started to make money, if you could. But how do you turn a forest into productive farmland in time to make those payments? The answer is sometimes you don't. And sure enough, with all that struggle, they, they, your ancestors couldn't make the payments. Uh, a, year a year later, they were defaulters. They couldn't pay. Anna shows me a newspaper notice and, yep, there they are. So there's a whole list of dozen or so names there. D. Watkin... Daniel, sections 12 and 13, block 4, and A.R. Watkins, section 17, block 4. And they were defaulted a year later. Gosh, I wonder what that year, they must have busted a gut for that year to try and make it work. Yeah, so they had no way to save money. All that they maybe had from back, back from Wales, they used for just surviving. There's another later notice in the newspaper giving a hint as to why Daniel failed. He took up 175 acres at Stratford adjoining his brother, yep, two brothers in fact, where he expected work but did not get it. He had expected money from home but not receiving it. He threw up the land. Oh my goodness. Not John though. His is another story because old John somehow muddled through those tough early years and he stayed on the land. What I suspect is that the brothers then worked together on one block. Definitely Daniel lived on John's farm. He also became a butcher at the freezing works in Waitara. And there's a sad story about him going bankrupt at one point and having to sell his only possession, a cow. And even then, big brother John still had to bail him out. Just one thing, yeah. your Uncle John. Oh yes, tell me about <laughs> Uncle John. John. Good old Uncle John. He was also one of the founders of the Cardiff Dairy Cooperative. Factories. And I heard it was one of the very first co-ops. The first co-op. And in Taranaki, in New Zealand? In New Zealand. That co-op, they built roads, they bred cows, made cheese, and lots of money. Anne's even tracked down their original memorandum of association. The memorandum of association. Wow. And in amongst there, John Watkin, Farmer Stratford, 75 shares... Well, that's by far the biggest shareholding. So, well done, great-grand-uncle John. What happened to my great-grandfather Arthur, though, is less clear. So, Arthur left. I have something interesting about Arthur. Okay. A couple of years later... July 83. Seems he'd been on some kind of ticky tour. There's a little notice. Mr Muir of Mangafero has leased his farm for a term to Mr Arthur Watkin who was settled near Stratford some time ago. This is from the Harra and Normandy Star, July 1883. This latter gentleman, after leaving Stratford, made a tour of the colony and finally returned to the mountain road. Back to the mountain road. As being the district in which he could best suit himself. Back to his brothers. 
effect which should inspire the settlers with confidence in their future. So he leased a piece of land there. So he Lease. wasn't able to own? Yeah. Oh, that must have been tough. Because the point of coming all this way to the other side of the world was to, to own, own land. land. So he still doesn't own it. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, Arthur's not exactly a settler success story. Those early years sound brutal. But yeah, I know what you're thinking too. It must have been more brutal for the Maori who had been kicked off that confiscated land all those years earlier. Which brings us to that question I came all this way to ask. Whether my great-grandfather's dream was built on someone else's nightmare. Whether his land was confiscated land. And if this is this map shows you this boundary is the boundary of confiscation. And it pulls out a giant map with a thick zigzag line that carves off just about all of Taranaki. Yeah, where did this fit? Was this land that they got confiscated land? So, so all this land was confiscated. It was confiscated under the New Zealand Settlement Act. 1863. Right. On paper, it it took the government a long time to actually enforce the confiscation. That's known as creeping confiscation, and we'll get to that shortly. But that word, confiscation, is a hard one to hear. This isn't exactly the news I'd hoped for. I think you're not alone. There are, there are a lot of people who, uh, when they're doing their family research, discover the same thing. Calvin Day again. Mm. And it hasn't sort of occurred to them that the, the bulk of Taranaki was confiscated. By the stroke of a pen, uh, all of this land was taken. I'm then thinking about my ancestors who, their hopes and dreams, their, the poverty they came from and the lives they were trying to build here, but weighing that with people who were here and whose land it was and who had no reason and didn't want to give up that land. No, and, and quite rightly so. You know, this is one of the things that people don't realise is that with the confiscation, you know, people uh, were no longer able to access the gardens, the forests, the streams and, and all of those resources they needed uh, for their own well-being. I liken it to when people, you know, you arrive home tonight and you suddenly find all your possessions might be on the front lawn, but even if they're not, the front door's locked. You yep. can't get in and you're told, well, you know, it's tough, um, away you go. Uh, that's really what it came down to. Part of the settler attitude would have been that this was undeveloped land, right? That Absolutely. it was it was not being productively used for the greater good. Um, but it wasn't as simple as that, was it? No, it wasn't. And, you know, you're right. They looked at the vast forests, the areas around, the, say, the Waimani Plains. There weren't many, many people there, and they thought, you know, what are they doing? They don't need all this land. We, we, we're gonna, we'll come and we'll, we'll farm it, we'll develop it, we'll make it productive. But you're right, Māori were using that land in a whole variety of ways. They had a what we call a seasonal round, so certain times of the year you would be looking at, and working in the forest. Other times you'd be down at the coast. Except the confiscations stopped all that, acre by acre. This creeping confiscation took place over the next few decades. And basically the idea was that you cleared the people out of those areas. You actually destroyed their villages, you moved them on. You then surveyed it off into sections, you put the roading network in, uh, and then once those sections were sold, uh, sorry, were surveyed, you can then put them up on the, on the uh, open market. And this is where you see the famous passive resistance coming from Te Whiti and Tohu at Parihaka. You have the ploughing of settlers' land, you have fencing across the roads, uh, you know, all done without firearms or weaponry, and, but it was just to continually remind the authorities at the time, that this was actually Māori land. It doesn't matter what the pen paper says. And in the end, how much land was confiscated in Taranaki total? So basically there was 1.2 million acres of, of land that was confiscated in Taranaki. 1.2 million acres. So it is a huge area. It is really quite hard to imagine. You can see it on a map, but... Um, it's still hard to, to comprehend. 
hard because of all the wealth and resources just taken away, not just from Māori in the 1800s, but from their descendants as well. And then you start going down that slippery slope of, of poor health yeah. um, and all of those things which um, really make a major impact on you as a person and your family. So this stuff, what we're saying, isn't just history. It has legs today. Absolutely. A lot of what we, um, the issues we're dealing with today are a legacy of the wars from the 1860s. At this stage, maybe like me, you're wondering what Arthur and other settlers made of all this. One wonders, did, did they know about it? Did, did they care? Did they hear about it? That's exactly what I want to know. Yeah. And I guess it was in the newspapers at the time? It was in the newspapers. So the newspapers were full of articles of propaganda, like um, creating a climate of fear. So they, they were saying, oh, to Fiti and Tohu at Parihaka are, are preparing to attack. And if you know anything about Parihaka and those two prophets, it's their commitment to passive resistance, right? To choosing peace. So this is this local newspaper? Peace or war? That was in September, 23rd September, 81. The natives in there are determined to use arms against the government if the Pakehas continue taking possession of the land. This is supposedly reporting a Tefiti speech, which seems unlikely. Then we learned that a number of fighting men now at Parihaka is between 900 and thousands. So a thousand fighting men, fighting age? Yeah, so that was the government used it kind of a, as a pretext. So Parihaka is housing criminals. Which is blatant propaganda, but Calvin also reckons there's a convenient kind of amnesia about Waitara and the 1860s wars. So those people who were buying that land, probably, they may have been aware that it had been confiscated, but it really didn't register, I don't think, um, what that really, the impact of that really was. They thought they were getting freehold sections that was theirs and theirs alone to develop. And they were starting a new life. They had dreams and hopes. And I think they just wanted really to get on with it. Mm. Underlying this, is it fair to say there would have been ideas of racial superiority as well, that the British Empire had a right? Absolutely. I don't think that uh, they would have given much thought to the hardship that they were actually inflicting upon the Maori population. Mm. Um, I think that they felt that they'd come all this way, they'd been promised this, you know, we need, we need to, to now fulfil those promises. So how do you wrestle with that these days, living here? I think for me it is around about um, trying to make people understand what actually happened at that time because it's very easy to be dismissive of, yes, you know, the Maori, well, they were rebels, weren't they? No, they weren't. They were actually defending their homes. And it's what anyone of us would have done. That's right. And the fact is that Maori owned that land. Uh, if they didn't want to sell, really, that should have been it. Um, you know, I'm reminded when the, the 50th anniversary of the attack on Parihaka was held in 1931, uh, the, some of the settlers got together and had a, uh, a lunch. And instead of um, toasting with wine or alcohol, they toasted in milk. And they said they did it because milk was representative of the huge wealth of Taranaki. Mm. Never mind the fact that that wealth had come off the back of confiscated Māori land and it just didn't even seem to register. And to think that... They just didn't see it. it they just didn't see it. For Arthur and his family, though, Taranaki was hardly a land flowing with milk and money. Defaultor, wanderer, tenant farmer, just as he was back in Britain. But he doesn't give up, and I love that about him. By 1897, he's in Hurirua, about 20 k's east of Stratford, and Daniel's there as well. So, yeah, they must have got enough money together to try again. Hurirua is remote, not far from the Forgotten Highway. Here's Watkin. Here he is, um, Arthur Roger, section, section two. two. Block two, Natimaru. This is Huiroa. Right. On the 3rd of May, 1900. 1900. He became the owner. The owner of 76 acres. Not much, and it's heck of a rough. 
but I'm just so glad Arthur finally owns some land. The problem, though, is there in the block name, Ngāti Maru. It looks like this again might be confiscated land, though it's around the boundary line and we can't quite be sure. So I think I need to go out and see that land that he ended up with. Yeah. And that's where I think I need to meet the Ngāti Maru people and talk to them. Hello. Hello, Anaru. How are you? Ah, g'day, Tim Watkin. Yes. Kia ora. Kia ora, welcome. This is Anaru Marshall. I've come to a single-storey business centre down on the New Plymouth waterfront and tucked in beside an accountant and immigration consultant and home loans outfit is the office of Ngāti Maru o Taranaki. Their land, though, is further east on the other side of the mountain. Yes, an arable land. Yeah, and the river valley comes right up through here. This is oh, the Waitara River. It borders the western boundary of Ngāti Maru right to the source. It goes inland from there, north towards the King Country. Yes, this is the Wanganui River here. Ah. East through Whangamamana towards the central plateau. So we border on that, the Matemati Oonga Range. Drops down over into the Pātea River, up the Manga. And south to Stratford. 220,000 hectares, half a million acres. As compensation, Ngāti Maru will get an apology, joint management of the Waitara River and some reserves, and $30 million. That works out at just $357.33 for each hectare lost. It's a fraction of a fraction. Um, when you think about this, this, this area here was um, heavily forested. Uh, but the big forests are gone. Um, so all that timber got pulled out of there too build towns, homes, whatever. Um, coal mines up here. Really? Yep. Huh. There's coal mines, there's been uh, hydroelectric plants. You get the point. Marshall reckons the true value is in the billions. And yeah, to answer my burning question, it does include the block Arthur Roger bought at Hudiroa. So I've learnt my great-grandfather bought not one, but two pieces of confiscated land in his lifetime. As you can imagine, I've got a bunch of questions for Anaru about that, but they're best asked and answered out on the land itself. Fascinating. We've started to get into this conversation, but we should probably hit the road. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go and see these we places. We not have anything to talk about when we get here. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Hudiroa is about three quarters of an hour southeast, deep in the heart of Ngāti Maru country. On the way, Anaru tells me how his iwi whakapapa back to an ancestor called Maru Faranui and to the Aotea and Tokamaru Waka. There's an epithet or a title that's been attributed to Maru for generations now, and that's uh, Maru, Ngāti Maru Mohoao Nui, the forest dwellers. Their land is right up in the back blocks. A lot of hill country, so quite remote. Where some retreated after the wars. Where Wiremu Kingi and his, some of his supporters came up into Ngāti Maru. Which is one of the reasons they had so much land confiscated, even though, and get this, they didn't even take part in that first stage of the war, in the year after the Waitara dispute. Uh, we didn't participate in that first conflict. A few turns off the beaten track and up against the swamp, we reached the T-junction where the township of Huriroa is shown on the map. Only these days there are just a handful of spread out houses and a run-down old schoolhouse, which we're told is occupied but certainly hasn't seen children for many a day. Huriroa, yes. we're here. We made it. <laughs> It's rugged land. I should probably set the scene. We're standing on what we're pretty sure was a bit of land that Arthur Roger Watkin, my great-grandfather, owned and bought in 1900. The current owners kindly did us do the interview leaning on the fence down by the bottom of the garden. Um, part of mm. a 76-acre block that he owned. Just over the fence are about a dozen donkeys dozing in the heat. But it's time to ask Anaru about this ruhi. Remember, he's leading the treaty settlement claim for his iwi. Um, what... Tell me about this land as much as, as, as you know it. Yeah, uh, huiroa. So... Anaru explains that the local dialect often drops the H's. So we, we've got references to uh, this area being called uh, huiroa or uiroa. And I think what may have happened is in the translation somewhere, one of the H's got left out and the other one... How does that change the meaning? Well, uh, Huhi is the uh, is a swamp. Ah. So a long so swamp. Not a, like a meeting. No, no. A, a long swamp, large swamp. 
And so, you know, that's and that's consistent with other narratives that we had that um, certain harakeke were harvested from this area as well. Harakeke? Uh, flax, ah. yes. The area was also a source of birds and fish and other kai. Yeah, so they were big um, food baskets, I guess. And so there were areas that people would come to regularly and at different seasons for specific catches. But then came the Waitara dispute and the wars, the raupatu, or confiscation, creeping through the rest of the 19th century, and settlers like my great-grandfather. What led to the conflict in Waitara was obviously just the hunger for land. Mm. You know, we, there were uh, settlers were arriving... Um, the pressure on the local government uh, was immense to, you know, make room, make space. How do you think your ancestors saw mine? <sighs> That's interesting. Honestly? Yeah, yeah. Well, history tells us that our, our, our people were very welcoming of settlers and, and, and Pākehā who came into the region. I don't know how long that lasted for. No. Um, there would have been at times, um, I guess, you know, a lot of distrust. And especially as um, time went on and it became apparent that you couldn't live the way you used to live on your, in your environment, that, that, those times had gone no, for Māori. they'd lost that. Yeah, so they had to become more uh, Europeanised and live in the, more in the European world, but they didn't have any resources. No, because they'd lost the they, land. They'd gone, yeah. Let's explore that a little bit, because that's one of the questions I wanted to ask. When you lost the land, what else did you lose, your people? Oh, you, you know, when you lose your home, you lose your family. One of the, um, I, I guess one of the sad stories that has come out of um, uh, Ngāti Maru doing its, um, in this claim process, is we researched all, our, all of our tūpuna from uh, the 1870s through to the 1820s. So. Wow. Anyone? Uh, 1970s or 1920s? Uh, no, 1920s, sorry. What we found was, yeah, out of the 100 and I think 147 tupuna that we had identified, 51% of them died without issue. Wow. I know. No way. That's the impact. That's, That's what. Phenomenal. Why? why? Well, if you, if you don't have a home, yeah. um, where are you going to raise a family? How are you going to raise a family? How can you have a family? And if you do, how do you keep them alive? It's staggering. The loss goes beyond just land. I'm trying to imagine what my great-grandfather would have thought and how he would have justified that to himself. What would you say to him now, if you could say anything? Gee, I don't know. It'd be, I, it'd be an emotional yeah, meeting, that's yeah. for sure. Because I want to hear that. I yeah. kind of feel as though something needs to be said to him because I'm trying to understand where he yeah. came from but I want to understand what, the impact what, he had what, too. What I'd like him to know and, and be aware of is that um, who we are yeah. and who was here and and um, yeah how we are you know and remember that when when him and others before him came we were very welcoming and open you know and yeah it's one of the things I, I, um, I sometimes think about when you, we, we talk about this power sharing. The mm. Crown has all the power and councils have all the power and we've got to struggle and fight for, for whatever we can get. And I'm reminded of, of something my auntie said to me uh, once she said, what their problem is, they don't want to share the power because they're afraid that we'll treat them as well as they've treated us. And that's, I guess, part of my conundrum, is that on one hand I can look at what my great-grandfather was part of and think there are decisions not to be proud of there. At the same time, a, I'm pleased he came because yeah. I'm pleased I'm here. Um, and B, I don't know what he didn't know. Yeah. And talking to, to historians yesterday, they were saying they might have known very little about what they were coming to. Well, ignorance right? is bliss, isn't it? Well, <laughs> but, yeah. But you know, I, 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 I often think too. You know, and, and is, you know, how do you put yourself in the minds of somebody in that place in that time? Yeah. You try and look at things retrospectively through um, our lens. I, I don't think we're going to get a clear picture of that. Sure, they were coming over here and probably struggling too.
So our expectation is is that the Crown, who basically created these situations and perpetuated them mm. o- over the years, um, they it's for them to make it right with us. So where we stand now, how how do we make sense of it in our generation? How do we get on when we've got this stuff still going on? I, I think, you know, in a way, we are getting on. Yeah. Yeah, we're moving forward. We're all moving forward. And I don't know why it's taken so long, but um, recently the government agreeing to start telling our history, the history of this country yes. in our schools. Yes. I think, you know, information is power. Information, you know, it, it's it's awareness. And if we can, um, from a young age, start to understand that, then you know we've got a we've got a chance at making a better better go of it than perhaps in a, in my parents' generation. And there are obviously settlements. There are iwi's are getting back on their feet and yep. uh, finding some of those, you know, a few percent yep. of what was taken, but some of those resources. Again, is it enough for a fresh start, or are we we've still got a long way to go to it's like resolve e- this? Everything that a um, a government will give you, it was just just enough. It's just barely enough. If not even that, um, we're going to have to make a good go of it yeah. for what we achieve in the in the settlement process. Um, you know, is it enough to um, give us a sense that justice has been done? Mm-hmm. No. no, no, never. Um, but you know, that's not what treaty settlements are about. What are they about then? They're about us getting a uh, a start. Uh, and an opportunity and opening doors to opportunities that we didn't necessarily have before. Mm. You know, when I look at uh, Ngāti Maru and and who we are and where we've come from, we've been here for 800 years. And we're still here. That's, you know, for me, that's that's an achievement in itself as a group of people who can um, affiliate to being um, together after 800 years. That's immense. I think we've got another 800 years ahead of us, easy. And I'm, you know, we just have to start laying the platform for that. That's a good mission for your generation. Yeah. <laughs> Aspirational. Thank you. thank you. So good to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. Namihi. Anaru's grace is a, is a real kindness. And yeah, of course, the very least we can do is to learn the stories, even when they can be as rough and swampy as the Natimaru land. History can't be consigned to the past. It's got too much to say about the present. Ngāti Maru hope to have their claim settled mid-year, the last of the Taranaki were to do so, which is something to celebrate, but it doesn't mean we have permission to forget. Quite the contrary. Hi, Mark speaking. Hi. Is Jacob there? Yeah. Hi, boys. How's your day been? Good. Hey, you know how you wanted to know more about the story of the brothers? Ah, yeah. Yeah, well, I've got some news. Okay. Do you want to hear what I found out? Yeah. This podcast was produced and presented by me, Tim Watkin. Sound engineers were Blair Stagpole, Jeremy Ansell, Flo Wilson and Rangi Powick. The podcast accompanies the awesome documentary New Zealand Wars Stories of Waitara, made by Great Southern Television. Both it and this podcast were made possible by the RNZ, NZ On Air Innovation Fund, and both are available on the RNZ website. Thanks so much for the interviews by Mihi Forbes, the help from Annabelle Lee, Kaz Donaldson, William Ray and Shannon Honui-Thompson. My special thanks also to Anna Eddy for all her research, Kelvin Day for his expertise, and Anaru Marshall for a very special day in Taranaki. And of course, thanks to my boys. Ma